Well, let me start by asking you a question. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? You know, when you actually take a moment to stop and stare at the image that you see in yourself, what is it that you find? You know, it's, it's a question that I don't think we often like to face, but I believe has a far greater impact on our life with God than we even realize. Now, I don't know about you. Uh, I don't know where you're at when it comes to the idea of, of doing life with God, of the idea of having a personal relationship with him. I'm sure for many of us here today, uh, the f- life of faith, relationship with God, it's been a significant component of our lives and who we are for, for a long time. And I'm sure there's some of us at the, the other end of the spectrum for whom, you know, the church thing, this whole Jesus thing, it's, it's brand new to us. And we would feel like we're exploring and unpacking what having a relationship with God, what that even means. And if that's you, you know, we're just thrilled that you're here hanging out with us today. And then I'd have to bet that there's a whole bunch of us somewhere, somewhere in the middle of that spectrum for whom, you know, church and faith it's been part of our routines, part of the ebb and flow of our lives for maybe even for some time. But if we were to stop and we were to, to reflect on where we're at when it comes to a meaningful and personal relationship with God, we may find that there's actually less substance there than we'd, than we'd hope for. Now, you know, when it comes to the idea of, of relating to God, it, it can feel difficult at times, you know, trying to relate to a God who we can't see, who we can't touch, who we can't necessarily hear from directly. You know, it can, it can be hard. It can be a little bit weird. It might even be frustrating for us at times. And because that's true, I think, I think sometimes what happens in our life with God is that it becomes more about, you know, trying to, to do the right things, trying to participate in the right programs, trying to, to read the right books or, or come to the right services, maybe even something like this one. And ultimately, it's about trying to, to be a good or even quote-unquote godly person more than it's about passionately and intimately relating to God in a moment-by-moment, day-to-day way. But beyond the fact that, you know, a relationship with God can be difficult, you know, that we, we can't see him, we can't touch him, and that, that could make it hard to know how to relate to him at times. I actually think that our, our biggest obstacle to experiencing a vibrant and full relationship with the God of the universe, I think our biggest obstacle stems from the fact that we don't fully comprehend who this God is and that we don't get how this God sees us. And at the end of the day, we don't, we don't grasp the full scope of how much he loves each and every one of us. Now, don't get me wrong. I think that uh, lots of us, we would say that we know that God loves us, at least from an intellectual perspective. You know, we've been told that God loves us. We've, we've heard it in environments like this. We sing songs about the fact that God loves us. You know, even this morning, singing about this great love that he has for us. Some of us have even told other people that, that God loves you and God loves them and, and God loves me. But I don't think our problem comes from not knowing that God loves us. I think too often we may know, but if we're honest with ourselves, we don't actually feel that God loves us. We don't feel it, you know, deep in the, the core of who we are. 
We don't always live with this overwhelming sensation that God has our absolute best in mind, that he's for us and that he just wants to constantly pour his love onto us. And when we only know that God loves us, but we don't feel his love, you know, that's when it becomes even more difficult to relate to God. That's when it becomes tough, maybe even to want to pursue a relationship with him. You know, if this is real, uh, think for a moment about the downward spiritual cycle that this can create in our lives. If we, if we know, if we've heard that God loves us, but if we don't feel that God loves us, we don't feel God's love in the pit of our gut, you know, then we begin to doubt whether this love that we've heard about, whether it's real and tangible, at least that it could be real and tangible for me. And as we begin, you know, to doubt whether that's the case, sometimes our foundation of our faith can, can start chipping away and slowly, subtly erode until one day we wake up feeling totally lost, wondering if this, this God thing, if pursuing this life of faith is even worth it. Whether it's worth taking one more step in the journey and we can be left feeling like even more of a spiritual failure. Because at the end of the day, a life of faith seems to start with, you know, things that we pursue and we believe and that we really know. And when we get to this place of not fully comprehending God's love and feeling like a spiritual failure, we only again feel as though, how could God love us? How could God really love me? And back around the cycle we go, all the while missing out on the abundant and vibrant relationship with God that we long for. So maybe some of you can relate to that. Maybe some of you would feel like you've fallen victim to this spiritual cycle of, of doubting that God really loves you. So how do we change that? How do we, how do we begin to experience God's love for what it really is? You know, that's, that's actually what we've committed this entire Only God series to for this next month, wanting to open ourselves, posture ourselves to being open to and receiving even a fraction of God's love deep in our core, deep in our gut. So let me go back for a moment, back to my opening question. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Because at our core, I think one of the reasons we are too often underwhelmed by God's love for us is because we don't understand how God sees us. And we certainly don't see ourselves the same way God sees us. You know, have you ever thought about that? How the way that you see yourself actually impacts how you assume that God sees you. I think for most of us, uh, whether we've reflected on it or not, we, you know, we generally believe that God looks at us and he sees us the same way that the world sees us. The same way that, that other people see us. Or probably more close to home, you know, the same way that we see ourselves. And how do we do that? You know, we see ourselves that we have flaws, that we have imperfections. You know, I think many of us see ourselves having some features that we are happy about, that we're glad about in ourselves, but those are so often overshadowed by the stuff, you know, the elements of our character or our appearance or our past that we feel that, you know, people can't look past and make us too difficult to love and respect. Some of us, through the journey of our lives, uh, we've been told that we're not good enough. We've been told 
that we won't amount to anything, that we don't have what it takes. We've been told that we're not smart enough, we're not strong enough, we're not pretty enough, we're not fast enough, we're just not good enough. We may have heard that we're not dateable, we're too quirky, or we're too boring, or maybe even that we're too nice. You know, that we're too broken, that we're too addicted, that we're too unforgivable. When we've heard these messages, either in word or in deed, you know, from parents, friends, family members, coaches or teachers, spouses, boyfriends or girlfriends, maybe even for some of us from pastors. And when we've heard these kinds of messages from people who we know love us, but don't seem to be able to look past the stuff that we can't look past either, that's when we assume that even though God loves us, you know, he must look at us the very same way. But we need, to start, we need to start changing our paradigm of how God sees us. And to do that, I want to start by going back to the beginning of the story of our lives, the poetic biblical account of the origin of our existence in, in the book of Genesis in chapter 1. And if you have a Bible with you today, uh, you can feel free to crack it open right at the beginning. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where it says this. It says, Then God said, Let us make people in our image to be like ourselves. They will be masters over all life, the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the livestock, wild animals, and small animals. So God created people in his own image. God patterned them after himself, male and female. He created them. Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was excellent in every way. About three months ago, uh, Lindsay and I welcomed our, our third child into the world with the birth of our son, Beckham. We've got uh, the, the shameless baby photo there for him, so you can catch a glimpse of the Beckmeister. But it's been a fascinating thing for us as, uh, as young parents with actually all three of our children. You know, how quickly people want to assess and sort of see in what ways they resemblance aspects of in what way they resemble aspects of one or both of us. And we've especially been reminded over the weeks since Beckham's been born, you know, that one of the first questions that people love to ask is, who does he look like? You know, proudly, I've been able to to see and to, to say and hear from others that with all three of our kids, at least in the earliest stages of their life, have had a pretty strong resemblance of their father. And that makes me feel like a pretty proud dad for sure. But it's funny, this has been, you know, so true that I can remember uh, only moments after the birth of one of our kids, I was, I was there with the midwife and, you know, she's, she's cleaning them up and it's, you know, still amidst the, the, a bit of the blood and the baby guck and, you know, the sort of alienite-like newborn features that they have. And she looks at them and she says, he looks like you. And considering the, the situation at the time, is he still being cleaned up? I wasn't sure whether I should receive that as a compliment or not. But there's definitely a pride, you know, that parents take in seeing their resemblance in their kids. Whether it's a physical resemblance or a character resemblance. You know, seeing our kids take after us or, or having the sensation that our children are a pattern of us. You know, it's an astounding thing. And for me, I think I, I most experience this or feel this and reflect on it around bedtime. You know, after a, a day full of chaos with 
both playing and fighting, tears, laughter, you know, whining, crying, and timeouts. If, if I have some quiet moments with one of my kids and can just sit, you know, holding them in a rocking chair, just amazed to look at them and, you know, see them as my child and to see myself in them. You know, to see that, that they have my eyes or that they have Lindsay's hair or to think about the fact that only hours earlier, they were just emphatic to be playing hockey with me, sharing our interests together. And now they feel no greater comfort, safety, and calm by being held in their daddy's arms. Now, this is the pride that parents feel when they look at their kids. This is the love that, you know, we can't contain when we see a resemblance in them. And this is the affection and admiration that excites us when we discover our likeness in them. And what we need to understand is that this is exactly how God sees us when he looks at us. This is what it means for us to be created in the image of God, to be created in the divine image of our heavenly father. You know, he looks at us like a proud parent and he sees himself in us. You know, we've been created to resemble and reflect the beauty and the glory of the God of the universe. And so it's incredible to know that when he looks at us, he proudly and gladly sees himself in us, in the core of our being and our very existence. In the original language, uh, the word image in that, that passage of scripture from Genesis, it actually has a deeper meaning uh, than just that of a, a likeness or a resemblance, although it is those things. But the word image can also be translated as the word icon or a word like idol. You know, the kind of word that we use to describe something significant, something that represents something to be admired or has inherent worth. I was thinking again about uh, my relationship with my kids and ways in which that I think Lindsay and I at some level can, can actually idolize our kids. And as I was thinking about this, it didn't take long for me to, uh, to press the home button on my iPhone. And I was struck you know, with the reality that the current wallpaper on my iPhone is a collage of all three of my kids. And you know, immediately I was, I was given the vivid picture of how we, we idolize our kids. You know, we do this with the, the different things that are the objects of our affections. For some of us, it's with our kids. For some of us, it might be our nieces or nephews or our pets. Maybe for some, it's, it's a car or something else that, you know, we, we adore. And we put up wall pictures on our walls and in our refrigerators and, and in our wallets of the things that, you know, we just love and that reflect the very character of who we are. At the core of our identity, this is how God sees us. This is how God feels about us. Have you ever thought about the idea that, you know, if God had his own cosmic iPhone or smartphone, the wallpaper that he would have set as the backdrop is a picture of you. You know, each one of you. You know, that's what it means for us to be made in God's image. And what's even more amazing uh, than the truth that God, you know, looks at us like a proud parent and he sees his resemblance. But it's that God is not just our proud parent. You know, he's actually the one who has carefully, carefully and delicately, and miraculously put together each and every one of us. In Psalm 139, uh, the psalmist you know, seems to have a heightened awareness of how majestically we've been created. And he wrote this about his own very being. In Psalm 139, verse 13, it says, 
You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous and how well I know it. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and and just visualize this for a moment. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You know, with the birth of, of Beckham, having recently journeyed as a family through uh, the nine months of pregnancy, and, you know, I'll use that word of journeying through together loosely. I don't claim to have done any of the hard work. But having gone through this process again, uh, it's amazing, you know, with the stuff you read, the stuff that you learn at the appointments and that you're exposed to, to just see that miracles are happening in the womb all the time. You know, the place where all of our lives started, there are miracles taking place moment by moment. Just consider uh, for a second how uh, the human eye, just one aspect of our being, how the human eye develops sight. It's an incredible thing. It happens around the five-month mark in the the journey of pregnancy. And we've got a a picture here of generally what we look like around the five-month point, uh, I hope you can remember those good old days, you know, back when life was calm and and peaceful and restful. But here we are around five months where at this point, our eyeball, along with every other organ in in our tiny little body, has been developing. But the eye hasn't yet been able to, to achieve sight until we've discovered that there's, there's a moment around this point in the process where over one million optic nerve endings come from our brain and they come together with, with over one million optic nerve endings from our eye. And they find their way together, you know, one million of these things coming together to make their perfect match. And as they do in that moment, for the very first time, this eyeball, it achieves sight. It can actually see. It's, it's an incredible thing. I know for me, uh, I sometimes have difficulty just taking the 30-pin the power connector, the adapter from my iPad, and smoothly getting it plugged into my iPad. I'm sometimes a bit fumbly with that. And yet, you know, I, I look at an iPad and I'm just amazed at the technology. I I'm, I'm marvel at the fact that we've been able to create this. And yet, our eye is the most biologically, technologically advanced thing that we know of. And it's this crazy, miraculous experience that happens when these nerve endings come together. And it's almost like a loving creator carefully, meticulously, and miraculously knitting us together. You know, do you get that God sees you as a miracle, that he sees you as marvelous, and he sees you as fearfully, wonderfully made by him? One of the fathers of the church, uh, St. Augustine, St. Augustine, excuse me, I I think in reflecting on how we, we sometimes miss out on the miracle that we are just in, in how we've been made. He, he wrote this. Listen to this quote for just a moment. He said, Men go abroad to wonder at the height of mountains, the huge waves of the sea, the long course of rivers, the vast compass of the ocean, the circular motion of the stars. But they pass by themselves and they don't even notice. Have you ever considered the tragedy that it is to miss out on the miracle that you and I are? You know, let's not miss out on the reality that just in how we are made, we are truly miraculous. And certainly in our broken world, we come with flaws 
We come with imperfections. We come with disabilities and underdevelopments. But God is the one who is, has put you together just the way you are. And he loves you and sees you as his miracle. So when you look in the mirror, what do you see? Because God sees us as his likeness. And God sees us as his miracle. And when God looks at the scope of our lives, he sees us as his masterpiece. In the book of Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, the apostle Paul, he wrote, he wrote this to the church, to a community gathered just like this one. Ephesians 2 verse 10, it says, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. I bet that for many of us here, when we you know, think about the, the journey of our lives, our, our past, our present, our anticipated future, the word masterpiece doesn't necessarily come to mind. But we need to get that this is exactly how God sees us. This is exactly how he looks at what he is doing in and through our lives, especially when we are seeking to put our faith in Jesus. You know, it would kind of be like Michelangelo, the first time he would have descended from his scaffold to just admire the brilliance of his work on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Or maybe like Charles Dickens, you know, sensing that he's coming to the end of a, an extraordinary literary achievement as he pens the final words of A Tale of Two Cities. You know, like the, the master artist or the expert craftsman who has finished their latest work, God looks at us with love and, as, and he sees us as his work of art, as his masterpiece. You know, personally, I, I haven't normally uh, considered myself much of an artist, but I've had a couple of my own crafty moments from time to time, usually in areas that I'm passionate about, which is, is probably true for most of us. And when I was a teenager, I was absolutely obsessed uh, with the sport of wakeboarding. I don't know how familiar you are with wakeboarding, but, you know, I had the magazine subscriptions. I watched the videos to get inspired by the latest moves. I even uh, went on a road trip with a friend uh, deliberately so that we could ride our boards at this, this special wakeboard park in Florida. And so that we could go to a wakeboard competition to, to drool over and admire our favorite athletes in the sport. So when I was about 16 or 17, I got really excited about taking my wakeboarding skills to the next level. And so I decided to build what is referred to in the, the world of wakeboarding as a slider. We've got a, a picture of it there to give you uh, an idea of what I'm talking about. And no, that is not me for those who are wondering. My wakeboarding skills never got to the point of being professionally photographed. But I set out to build my own version of this ramp, you know, slash rail slide so that hopefully, hopefully I could do, learn, learn to do moves just like this one. So after countless hours of research, you know, looking at the magazines, watching the videos and going online, I brought one of my buddies on board to give me a hand to make our very own slider. We started by drawing up a few primitive but hopefully promising sketches. And then we went off to spend hundreds of dollars on the lumber and the hardware and the PVC piping so that we could begin carefully constructing what was going to be our extreme sports version of a work of art. After the better part of a weekend spent in my parents' garage, 
we did in fact manage to craft our very own, albeit somewhat unsophisticated, wakeboard slider. You know, I could, I could remember uh, barely being able to sleep the night before we were actually going to get it onto the water and it could be given its first test run. You know, it was, it was quite a process for us to, to lug the about 10 foot long by 12 foot high structure uh, upside down in my parents' boat from their house in Vineland to the Jordan Harbor. But after a few hours and a lot of patience from my dad, we actually managed to get this thing into the water and position it, you know, just as I had pictured in my head when we first started drawing up the sketches. And I can, I can remember what the day looked like. It was a beautiful day. The sun was shiny, shining, gleaming off the water, gleaming off the PVC piping. As I jumped in the water, you know, we got the boat going and I got up carving through the wake. I remember feeling just this amazing moment of the, the masterpiece kind of experience that I had pictured. And probably one of my most, my artistry at its best where my passion for wakeboarding and my, my craftiness were about to collide. Now to briefly and ironically tell you how, how the story ended when I actually gave it a try. On my first attempt, I nearly cracked my head wide open. And so my parents insisted that I was not allowed to try it again until I got a helmet. So getting a helmet, you know, we came back about a week or so later, ready to give it another try. And I don't know if it was the wind or the waves or the instability of the structure, but the whole thing at least appeared to have been submerged couldn't even find it, and my priceless work of art was lost in the Jordan Harbor forever. But as sad as the loss of my teenage work of art is, the point of the story is that the same way that I was obsessed with and passionate about wakeboarding, you know, the same way that I daydreamed about getting on the water, soaking in the sun, and riding all day long, and the same way that I carefully crafted my slider and could hardly sleep in anticipation of seeing its purpose fulfilled, you know, this is the same way that God looks at you. you know, the way that he looks at your life as his obsession, as his passion, as his work of art that he wants to be fully engaged with to keep shaping, shaping you into the person that he's made you to be. You see, God looks at us as both a finished masterpiece and a work in progress. You know, he, he steps back and he looks at how he's made us and he smiles and just admires the, the work of art that we are. But he also leans in closely like a potter at a sculpting wheel to keep molding and shaping us into the people that he's making us to be for the good things that he's planned for us long ago. I don't know if you can relate to my wakeboard story. But, you know, we all have these passions and these artistic expressions. For some of us, it might be in the way that we feel, you know, after we've just cut our lawn or spent a day working in the garden. And, you know, we wipe the sweat from our brow and we step back and we just admire the perfectly trimmed blades of grass. And then maybe we play a game of soccer in our backyard or we, we have a barbecue and just enjoy the fruits of our labor. For some of us, it might be, you know, in a, a craft like quilting where we pull together all kinds of different fabric. And it's, it's quite a journey and quite a process to bring together the patchwork. And when it's done, we, we step back and, and just see how it has come into form and we're just amazed by it. But then we're even more excited that it's ready to fulfill its purpose, to provide comfort and warmth. You know, for some of you, it may be the feeling you get when you 
Get the motorcycle on the road for the first ride on a a warm day in spring, which hopefully will be coming our way soon. Or when you get the the engine revving in your hot rod after months of, of building it and restoring it. For some of us, it might be in our artistic pursuits and artistic expressions that demand our personality, our vulnerability, our passion, freedom, and focus as we write and we paint, we dance, and we create. You know, the way that we feel about these things, this is how God feels about us. We are his masterpiece. You are a first edition, one-of-a-kind work of art that is priceless in his eyes. But he's not done with us yet. We are God's work in progress, the thing that he enjoys working on like nothing else. You know, a poem that is still being written, a sculpture still being molded, and a model car still being restored. The truth is, God is crazy about you. He can't stop thinking about you, can't stop obsessing over you. He is infinitely interested in you. That's who you are in God's eyes, and that is how much he loves you. So when you look in the mirror, what do you see? As I close, there's one more story that I want to share. It's a story that that Jesus told, one of his parables, to describe what the kingdom of heaven is like. If you've been around Southridge for any length of time, uh, you've probably heard us talk about God's kingdom. And we've just come out of our, our series studying the Lord's Prayer where We've been learning to pray and to live in a way that invites God's kingdom to come and his will to be done in our lives. But when Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven, he would often use these parables, these stories, you know, these illustrations to help us capture the wonder and mystery of what God's kingdom and therefore God's heart is really like. In Matthew chapter 13, uh, Jesus rhymes off a whole bunch of these illustrations describing the kingdom. And one of them is tucked in there in just a single verse. And it goes like this in Matthew 13, 44. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. So picture this. There's a guy walking through some random open field and he all of a sudden stumbles upon a buried treasure. And as he begins uncovering it, you know, he sees that it has massive value. And it's something that that he feels that he has to have and he wants to buy this field. And we don't even know if it's for sale, but if it is, it costs way more than what he can comfortably afford. But he goes out and he sells everything that he has so that he can get enough money to go and buy this field and thereby obtain the treasure that he has found. Now, if you've grown up in the church or you're somewhat familiar with the Bible, you may have heard this parable or heard parables like it. And as we do in these environments, we immediately begin to draw uh, conclusions and applications. And the way that I've heard this parable applied before is that we, as people, represent the guy who's walking through the field. And the treasure that we stumble upon is the kingdom of heaven. And so therefore, what we take away is that we need to be willing to give up absolutely everything to be able to pursue God's kingdom. But it's interesting. It's interesting when you uh, read this story as part of its larger context and realize that 
it may have a completely different meaning altogether. You see, as I mentioned, this parable is embedded in about four other parables that Jesus tells that, that are similar to it and follow a similar pattern. Parables that some of you may have heard of, such as you know, the parable of the, the sower and the soils, or the parable of the farmer and the crops, or the parable of the mustard seed that gets you know, planted, nurtured, and, and flourishes. And in all of these other parables, we normally uh, understand the man, which they all start with a man going out to do something, and we understand the man to be God. And we understand us to be represented by the passive or dormant object that God plants or nurtures or harvests. But in the parable of the hidden treasure, we often turn our interpretation on its head, assuming that we are the man who found the treasure. But could it be that the kingdom of heaven is actually like a loving God who discovered a hidden treasure in you and I that he absolutely had to have? And even though it cost him everything by sending his one and only son, Jesus, to pay a price by dying on the cross for us, that was a price that he joyfully and willingly paid so that he could own, cherish, and lavish his love on the treasure that you are to him. I believe that God is digging for your heart like a frantic gold rusher, you know, seeking to find their own buried treasure. God loves you, but he doesn't just love you. You are his prized possession that he has stopped at nothing to own and to cherish and to love, even when it meant giving up his one and only son in the person and work of Jesus. You know, God looks at us and he loves us. He doesn't see us the same way we see ourselves. No, he doesn't look at you and see the high school dropout. He doesn't look at you and see the addict, the screw up. He doesn't look at you as the person who you know, feels like you can barely hold down a job or keep your business afloat. He doesn't look at you as the single mom the deadbeat dad or the divorcee. He doesn't look at you as out of shape or overweight or needing to change. He doesn't see you as disabled or underdeveloped or imperfect. He doesn't see you as over the hill or old-aged. He doesn't see you as the workaholic. He doesn't see you as your successes or your failures. And he doesn't see you as too far gone, not worth it or unlovable. No, God, he sees you as his likeness, bearing his divine image. He sees you as his child who he passionately adores, the object of his affection. You know, he sees you as his miracle. It's the greatest thing that he has ever made. And he looks at your life, the whole scope of your life, and he sees it as a masterpiece, a beautiful work of art that he is continuing to mold and to shape the way he's always intended. And he looks at you and he sees you as his treasure. The treasure that he absolutely has to have, that he will stop at nothing to gain. It's his prized possession that he loves so much. So when you look in the mirror, what is it that you see? Because God sees us as his prized possession and he loves each and every one of us just the way that we are. So let's know that today. Let's know how he loves us 
but let's not just know it. Let's feel it and embrace it for what it really is because that's how God sees us when he looks at us. Let's pray together. God, we want to know and experience your love to its fullest extent. God, would you help us to see us in the same way that you see us? Because if we could get there, if we could know how you lovingly looked at us, it could change everything in our relationship with you. Help us to see and to know and to feel that we are made in your image, that we are your miracle, that we are your masterpiece, and we are your treasure. Thank you for your love for us and the way you've expressed your love through Jesus. May we come to feel it and be truly overwhelmed by it today and in the weeks to come. God, we pray in your name. Amen.